Lord, we do thank you that you give us truth. Lord, we need your truth to live by. Uh, we certainly have, uh, we're, we're confronted with lots of different ideas. We, we come up with lots of different ideas for um, how we think life is supposed to work, how we think that uh, you are supposed to, to function for, for us. We have this tendency to put ourselves in the middle of our world, uh, to expect the world to, to function the way that we think it should. And Lord, I'm so glad that, that you don't change the world to meet our expectations. Lord, we need your perspective. We need your uh, grace. We need your power to accomplish what you desire to do. Uh, Lord, we pray this individually and we pray it corporately. And we need your guidance, Father, individually and corporately. Lord, I pray that you would Fill me with your spirit to speak your word. Pray, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit work within each one of our hearts to penetrate and to, to cut between the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts exactly uh, as needs to be done. We pray, Lord God, that you would give us your direction to accomplish your tasks for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're approaching Second uh, Thessalonians, if you remember, from the perspective of the importance to work wisely. If you recall, the Thessalonians were facing a lot of pressure, a lot of affliction, a lot of persecutions, and, and yet they were being told to be doing the work of ministry, to, to not uh, slack off to not use, make excuses to not allow others to, to take care of the tasks that they had to do. But yet in that, to be wise about it. Uh, this morning we, we look at how it's important to use God's power tools, if you will. I can remember watching a, a video online of, of different... Um, People just not really using tools the way that they were supposed to and stuff. And, and um, this guy came in with his phone and he was like, hey, how's that, uh, how's that power uh, chisel working for you? And he's, and he's got this uh, huge um, battery-powered chisel. And he's like, oh, it's working great. And he's, and he's removing this uh, mortar from the side of a wall. He's like, oh, well, uh, show me how, how, to, how you use it. And he's, and he's laughing as the guy's sitting there and just taking it and scraping off the mortar off the side of the wall, just moving the whole thing all at once. It's like, just pull the trigger, guy. Now, th that's what it's there for. Uh, those of you who remember uh, the Tim the Toolman Taylor, how, uh, his response was whenever they'd bring out a new power tool, do you remember? He'd go, ar, ar, ar. 
You know, because it's like an anticipation. I'm going to get something done with this. It's, it's got power to it. One of my favorite jokes is uh, the guy that uh, decides to try his hand, and I think I've told this maybe eight years ago, but decides to try his hand at uh, lumberjacking, you know, being a logger. And so he goes into the equipment shed, and they hand him his uh, big old chainsaw, and they're like, okay, let's see how, how many trees you, you, uh, you get taken care of and maybe if you survive. And so he comes back at the end of the day, and they're like, okay, so how many trees did you fell out there? He's like, I didn't get a single one. I was working on the same tree all day long. They're like, you're kidding. You, di- you didn't even get the one tree down? He's like, no, I don't know how you guys do this. Like, well, let me see your chainsaw. And the, and the foreman picks it up and looks at it and, you know, tweaks something here and there. I wouldn't know what he'd do with it. And then all of a sudden pulls the cord and... And so the, the, the you know, novice lumberjack looks, steps back like, what in the world? Because he's just been sitting there trying to saw the tree down back and forth with it like this all day. It's like, turn it on. Turn on the power. It's a power tool. That's what it's supposed to be used for. So let's look at verses 11 through 12 of 2 Thessalonians 1. As we look at the importance to use God's power tools as we work wisely. Paul writes, to this end we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's so many phrases in these two verses that that cause it to me to take on such a significance. First, I want to mention, every time he says you in this, he's not speaking individually. Of course, the same truths are true for us individually. But he's speaking to them as a corporate body, and we need to not miss that. When he says, to this end we pray for y'all, that our God may make y'all worthy as a corporate body. The work that Paul is praying that God would accomplish is also, as we mentioned, in the midst of persecution. That, that that wouldn't steal their effectiveness. Or as one writer says, trials do not make a person. They reveal what a person is made of. And they reveal, I think, what a person can still see happen by God's power. And I would hope that trials that I face show that I'm nothing without God's empowerment. That's, that's the blessing of them. Uh, first of all, I want to challenge you here this morning. Let's experience all that God can do. Let's experience all that God can do. What a great verse here, verse 11. To this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Now, when Paul says we always pray for you, 
We can think of how Paul might be constantly praying for them, and that could be speaking of the frequency. But more is focusing on the priority or the centrality that when we pray for you, we are praying that God would make you worthy of his calling. When we pray, we always pray that God would make you worthy, you corporate body Thessalonians, worthy of his calling on you. Notice how it's translated here that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Transformation is God's power tool. It's what he accomplishes. It's what he does. It's how he changes us. Last two weeks we looked at how Paul described these believers as being made worthy in the sense of being declared righteous by God's righteous judgment in that when Christ appears, they will be shown to be worthy. And, and we saw that in verse 5 where he says, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are now suffering. But here in verse 11 as we look at it, we see him pray that they might live in a way that is worthy in the meantime. This means to lead lives in keeping with their destiny. It's similar to his recollection back in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 12, to the Thessalonians, where he says, We exhort each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I like what Warren Wearsby says here. Character must lead to conduct. And this walking worthy is a common theme of growth in following Christ. It's how how the Holy Spirit is going to respond to his gospel work in our lives. You might be thinking of Ephesians 4 where where right at uh, the beginning of chapter 4 is where the letter to the Ephesians turns from doctrine to practicality of living out that doctrine. And in that, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. This is what it looked like for them. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Notice again that corporate nature to this calling. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You might think of Colossians 1. Where Paul writes, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. I appreciate what the Bible Knowledge Commentary, it says, Christians do not live worthily in order to obtain salvation, but because they have been granted salvation. Now, when I speak about God's power tools, we we need to clarify something here. Because... In our sinfulness, we have a tendency to think man-centered, where where we're in the middle 
and the world kind of revolves around us. We have a tendency to think of God in terms of his purpose. What, what, what he's there to do is to, is to be a part of our life that makes our life better. And so we have this tendency to think that we gain the power necessary to get God to use his power for us. We have this tendency to think that a power tool is what we use to get God to work on our behalf. That is not what we're talking about here. This passage is God-centered, as is the rest of his word. And we need to see that God will work with his power to do what he desires to do. And with that in mind, let's see all that God can do as he forms us into his likeness. That's his ultimate goal. That's what he is doing. That's the good that he is working toward while we are on this earth. Romans 8, 28 through 29 speaks of this calling and, and what this calling is a calling to while we are here on this earth. You're familiar with this where it writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So what is that good that it's all working toward? Well, that's what verse 29 answers. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That is the good that God is working all of his children toward. To be conformed to Jesus what does this look like? Well, Jesus was sinless. As we grow, we become more conscious of sin. We become less dependent on those idols that we've put in our life that we think are going to provide us with what we need. Jesus suffered righteously. And so as we grow more into his image, we grow less attached to pleasure and comfort as our definition of the good life. Jesus loved God and loved people. That summarizes what it means to die to self and to live for Christ and to live for others. We are called to be conformed to God's likeness, to Christ's likeness. I shared last week and, and uh, something I've been thinking about recently is, is, you know, my youth pastor when I was growing up, uh, he, he passed away this past January from pancreatic cancer. And he, reflecting on his impact on my life, for that time in my life, he's probably the most formative person that ever had an impact, a single person that had the most impact on my life personally. And, and I've enjoyed uh, reading some of his uh, blogging uh, most recently titled, Thoughts of a Dying Man. And one of his blog posts ends with one of these statements. It is easier to die a good death when you've lived a good life. It's easier to die a good death when you've lived a good life. As often happened, it's made me think his passing of how brief life really is and how important it is to be transformed by God early and often. Kind of like voting in Philadelphia and Atlanta. It's much easier to live a good life and to die a good death when we're free of shame. 
I appreciated a pastoral book that I've been reading that kind of explained the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is, is a recognition that, that we've done wrong. But shame is, is believing that we are wrong. That there's something wrong with us at our core. Guilt and shame were dealt with at the cross. Recogn- guilt is, is a part of coming to Christ as our Savior. Recognizing, I have done wrong. I, I sin every day in my thoughts, in my words, in my actions. But Christ took the penalty of my sin on himself and paid it. And offers for me in recognition of that and in receiving the work that he did in his death and in resurrection that I could take his righteousness on myself. And I have the opportunity from that point forward to be in Christ, to be a new creation. Now, when I feel shame, if, if guilt is recognition that I've done wrong, shame being recognition or, or believing there's something wrong with me. If I'm in Christ, if I've been made into a new creation, in that state, there's nothing wrong with me. But yet that's what the enemy wants to keep claiming. You see, we can get into this sin-shame, sin-shame cycle. Because sin brings shame. And it, start, and it gives us a different definition of who we are. Guilt, that's, conviction says there's something wrong with what you did. Shame says there's something wrong with who you are. Even though you're in Christ. And, and, and it makes us, when we're stuck in shame, it makes us even more fertile ground for temptation. And that temptation is offered to us again as a balm for the pain of shame. And when, and when we mistakenly take that as, as a balm for our pain of shame, guess what that sin does? It leaves us in more shame. And you see that sin-shame cycle going on. The more you see who you are in Christ, if you know Christ as your Savior, the more you'll be free from shame. And the more you'll be set free to live out of your calling to follow Christ, to walk worthy of that calling, and the less you'll be keep going back to those sins to use as a balm for that shame. The more we experience victory over temptation, we are transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ. And the less we have to be concerned with shame clouding our identity, that calling that we've been called to walk worthy of. Let's see all that God can do as he forms us into his likeness. And don't forget here the corporate nature of this calling to follow Christ. We're called to be conformed to the image of Christ corporately. Think of this from Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13, where it describes the body of Christ called to look like Christ, to follow that calling together, where it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for the building up of the body of Christ until we all together attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's talking about us together corporately. It takes us helping one another to be more transformed into Christ and thus to grow into him as the body of Christ. And so with that, let's, let's see all that God can do as we participate also in his work. Notice the, the prayer here, that our God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. And grammatically, what is accomplished by his power, both of these things, fulfilling every resolve for good by his power and fulfilling every work of faith by his power. Or as Warren Wiersbe writes, obedience and service do not spring from human talent and efforts, but from God's power as we trust him. We get to work with God's power tools as we do what he has laid on our hearts to accomplish. That's what he's saying here when he says that our God may fulfill every resolve for good by his power. Or as NIV puts it, every good purpose of yours. Every good purpose of yours. This is why Psalm 37, verse 4 in say, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. But it begins with delight yourself in the Lord. It, Paul flips it over and says, Everything that God has laid on your heart to do, being transformed means you're be, you'll be doing that by his power. What is the res, What resolve for good has God been convicting you of to pursue? Maybe you see the shame, sin, shame, sin cycle happening in your life. It's time to break it. And any of us shepherds would love to help you with that. Corporately, what resolve for good is God leading us to be about? We know what our purposes are to exalt God to edify and equip believers, and to extend his kingdom. One of the things we're trying to do is, as, as a newly formed missions team is, is to, to bring to your attention more and more how we are, God is using us to extend his kingdom uh, globally. But we are about to be about these things here on Sunday mornings as well, exalting God, edifying and equipping believers. And, and, and going out into Montgomery County and Park County and Putnam County, extending his kingdom. The second way we get to work with God's power tools is that our God may fulfill every work of faith by his power. I, I like how the NIV puts this also in, when it says, it describes it as every act prompted by your faith. In other words, everything that God is giving you the faith to do, to be a part of. I like what the New Testament commentary says. Faith is not passive. It is a ceaseless, it is ceaselessly active, appropriating God's blessings and using God's power for God's service. 
What step or work of faith has God been laying on your heart? How does he want you to live with you? How, how does he want to live with you on his gospel mission in your daily life? What has he been keeping in the back of your mind, but you just don't see how it's going to happen? Well, if you remember from Hebrews 11, faith is the evidence of things unseen. That's kind of part of the definition. You don't see how it's going to happen. I like the idea, the definition that to live by faith is to live in such a way that if God doesn't show up, you're going to fall flat on your face. And that's how we want to live as a body of believers. In such a way that if God doesn't show up, we'll fall flat on our face. Corporately, we must be also praying always for what God is giving us the faith to see him do. Now, let me make a little another side note here because there's a lot in our culture that confuses this. The idea that of God fulfilling every work of faith falls so far short in much of the teaching today. I mean, we can kind of understand when the person's saying, I believe in faith for that third uh, personal jet. But a lot of times we hear people basically saying, I believe in faith that I am not going to be persecuted. Because all things work together for good. But as we already looked at, that's, that good is being conformed to the image of Christ. I appreciate the teacher that said, some people actually are teaching that if you just have enough faith in Christ, you won't actually have to live like Christ. And that's not the case. God gives us the faith to live in whatever circumstance and to live it for him. To be God-centered is to realize that we are called to submit to what God wants us to do as a body. And the purpose of, of conforming us to the image of Christ, that's always his purpose. Fleshly Christianity basically uh, equates power with the power of persuasion, the power of charisma, the power to force people's compliance. Spirit-filled Christianity understands the fruit of being filled with the Spirit. And that fruit is seeing God work, seeing God do the work as we step out in ministry and as we use the gifts that he's given us to do. That's what a spiritual gift is. That area that when filled with the Spirit, you're going to see God do a spiritual work. So let's experience all that God can do as he forms us into his likeness, as we participate in his work. My summary of, of these verses is this. This is the goal, that God would grow us into being worthy of his calling on us and that he might accomplish by his power all the good we desire to do and every act of faith we long to accomplish by God, through God, and with God. I remember an advertising campaign that kind of stuck with me. And uh, I think it was like United Way or something like that. 
And it was just three words. Don't almost give. Don't almost give. And, and it was so profound because they recognized something having to do with human nature. That we can feel like, you know, I really should do, I really should, I really should. And then for some, some reason, once we have the resolve, yes, I'm going to do that. All of a sudden, the, 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 the gumption, just like, phew. You know, like the tension goes away because we've decided what I'm going to do. But so often, human nature is such that we don't end up doing it. So that's why the name of the campaign, Don't Almost Give. Don't almost grow. Don't almost walk according to the calling with which you've been called. Don't almost God see uh, don't almost see God change you for the good that you know that you're made for? Don't almost see God work in what he's given you faith to believe he'll do? In other words, it is so easy to listen to this message and say, yes, I know that that is where God wants to do a work of good in me. I know that that is where God has been laying on my heart to act in faith on. Don't walk out of here and almost do it. That doesn't work. There's no point in that. And all that we think are important results of following Christ, as we move forward here, there's something that supersedes all that we might consider valuable. It's the greatest goal that should be ours, and it is the, to glorify God. So let's experience the exalted Christ. He says here in verse 12, So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, notice, when he talks about that the name of our Lord Jesus might be glorified in you, this is plural. This is speaking to us as a corporate body. Certainly that happens individually as well. But let's just keep that in mind, that, that the, the prayer here is that Christ would be glorified in them as a church. And it's the name of the Lord Jesus. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says, in the Bible, the name stands for the, the person named, his character, his conduct, his reputation, and everything else about him. Sadly, what, what appears to, quote-unquote, be working in, in the, 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 the uh, general church culture today is to promote the name of the church, the brand of the church, the name of their preacher. That's not our purpose. That's not what we're to be about. We're to be about glorifying the person of Jesus Christ. I, this is an interesting statement, that he would be glorified in us and us in him. This is not being glorified with him, but glorified in him. And Christ being glorified, or and, and Christ, uh, us being glorified in him, and he in us. That this is a, a the closest of unions. This is an intimacy 
that we grow in with Christ as we glorify him and we are glorified in him. It's, it's kind of hard to picture, but this is what Jesus prayed for in John 17, verses 21 through 23, where, where he says, praise to the Father, that, may, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Our unity in following Christ together is a major part of our glorifying God. And our being glorified in him as we participate in his kingdom work is significant. I appreciate something the the ESV study Bible says. It talks about the glorification of Christ's name in the Thessalonians occurs when they exalt him as Lord in their daily life. Made me think of our mission as a church. And if, you, and if you've joined us here recently, we haven't talked much about this mission as a church, but our mission is to make it about Jesus. But it's about Jesus and you together on gospel mission in your daily life. It is about Jesus and you together on gospel mission in your daily life And all of this is according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I like how the New Testament commentary defines grace. It's the favor God shows to the unworthy. The favor that God shows to the unworthy. I don't know about you, but I fit that category. Any favor that God shows me is according to his grace. And we don't deserve the position, the power, or the know-how to bring glory to God. But yet we're called to it. And that's walking worthy of our calling. This is why uh, all of our involvement is due to God's grace. I like thinking about 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. Guess what? We're the foolish that he chose. God chose the what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. In other words, I don't deserve the presence of God. It is according to His grace. Imagine that you're walking down a city sidewalk, okay? You got things on your mind. You're just kind of got your head down and you're just grinding it and and you're trying to get through your day you're trying to get your stuff done you're surrounded by other people that 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 you know i've got their own plans and their own intentions with things and and uh, you got the burdens of the world just riding on you and you're walking down this city sidewalk 
And all of a sudden, you're lifted off the ground. And you're lifted off 20 feet, 40 feet, 100 feet, 200 feet. You're just going higher and higher up in the air. And what has happened is that a crane has grabbed you by the shirt collar and has taken you up higher than you could ever imagine. And this crane is sitting atop of the largest building that has ever been built. And it's right at the the tail end of completing this building. And as that crane lifts you up and drops you down onto the the platform around the control uh, room of this crane, you look out and, and you've been lifted off of this little city street that you're walking on and you can see for miles. You can see all of the streets and you can look to one side and you can see that the streets are filled with dignitaries from all over the world there to celebrate the construction and the completion of this largest building ever built. This is a, an accomplishment. You get a total change of perspective. And there you see this crane lift up one last final piece and sets it up on top of that building. And it states, built by Jesus. And you sit out on that, you stand out on that platform and wave to the crowd, joining in the celebration. You somehow have been attached to this great event without having been known beforehand that it was even going on. And somehow participating in the glory of the builder. We don't deserve to be a part of God's eternal work on this earth. It is by His grace alone. We would never be able to accomplish all that God has been doing for the last 2,000 years. It has all been by His power. We have always been intended to do what we have done as a part of His body for one purpose, so that Jesus might be glorified both now and for all of eternity. And I want to end here focusing on, I appreciate this quote from, from a book I've been reading this week that talks about the significant moment that made all of this happen, that made all of this possible. It says, The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, not only cleanses from all iniquity, but it also brings the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit to create a clean heart, and a new and right spirit. With the two-sided coin of Christ's righteousness and holiness, he puts together what seems to have been irretrievably and utterly broken. Our God is surpassingly rich in his grace. And it all came and was all made possible because of the sacrifice of his son. And that's what we're called to live out of. Let's bow our heads.